Hey friends, my name's Will. And my name's Hannah. And you're listening to the Spiritual Misfits Podcast. If you've ever found yourself on the fringes of Christian faith, this is a safe space for you. Your questions, doubts and hopes are all welcome here. We're creating conversations, affirmations, meditations and other resources to support you on your spiritual journey. And let you know that even if you feel like a misfit, you don't have to feel alone. Well, here we are in the digital pub again uh, with a first time potty guest. John Reichart joining Mitch Forbes and I this evening. Welcome, John. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome back, Mitchell. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. It's good to be, it's good to be here. Yep. <laughs> um, John, what do the good mm-hmm. people need to know about John Reichart? Um, well, I am a spiritual misfit, so I, it's quite fitting that I'm doing a podcast with you guys called Spiritual Misfits. Um, Now, I don't actually know how many people, like especially my um, OG Christian friends, know how far I've kind of ventured away from the fold um, theologically. So maybe this is a bit of a coming out moment. But, I mean, I I gather that, you know, I've been pretty active um, on socials um, on and off over the years, like, throwing a spanner in the works of, you know, especially kind of more traditional um, mainstream evangelical views and, um, you know, saying things that that I think. And um, anyway, I – where should I start? Um, I moved up the coast with my wife and my son a few months ago uh, from Sydney and uh, – we linked in with Will um, through uh, Hannah, Hannah McCauley, Hannah Gearhart, and um, another friend actually as well, Ellie. Um, uh, I reached out to her and Hannah just like asking if there were any like, you know, uh, churches or Christian communities that we would survive in um, or, you know, that could survive Hell's part of Mitch's church. <laughs> survive with, survive with me being there. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Cool. Um, so you're in yeah, good company. You know, it's funny because um, I was just talking to Ellie the other day and she's like, oh, you know, you should, you and Rach should come up to Newey and we'll go to church in the morning and then get some lunch. So, yeah, that would have been funnier. I would have been like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> Just happened he, to be he's, here. he's a fellow nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we read we a hung philosophy out. and theology conference together the other week. Oh. That's right. <laughs> I got I got to fill in a little bit of context because John, like we we met, um, you know, at, at meeting ground one morning, and yeah. you we mainly talked about hip hop because you you know your oh, day yeah. job is music production. You didn't mention mm-hmm. that, but um, no. very cool, very cool job. John, and, I think you uh, may very... have been the coolest person at our philosophy conference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. There was that. At least the person with the coolest job. Like... <laughs> that tall guy with super long dreads. I was like, wow, this guy. Uh, is, Rob is... French, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, you're right. He is a very, very cool, cool guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't match the mold of like DBH fans, you know? Um, 
No. Nah. Like, we'll talk we'll talk about DBH fans in a moment and who DBH is if anybody hasn't like felt too alienated and bailed yet. Um <laughs> They heard hip hop. They heard hip hop and they bailed. I think this pod should just be about hip hop. That's what I'm interested in now. Now that we're talking about it, I'm like, I want to, I want to hear your hip hop conversation. Well, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll let's, time. we'll footnote that. Yeah. But uh, that got me excited because I like hip hop. And then yes. we're hanging out the following night and we start talking about some philosophy, and that got me excited. And then Mitch was like taking me because uh, he he took me to Rob Bell. He took me to David Bentley Hart. He's my theology date. Mm-hmm. Mitch was taking mm-hmm. me to, to David Bentley Hart. And I was like, oh, John, you yeah. know, you like you turned philosophy. It, you turned you it into like an open relationship. And here I am. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I'm into open theism. So I thought I'd be into open theism relationships. Uh, <laughs> it's a terrible joke. Um, so long story short, the three of us ended up going to spend a day nerding out in the company of David Bentley Hart and a bunch of other people that are attracted to, you know, sitting on a Saturday in a uh, lecture hall and just just listening to talking all day about classic theism. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So You sold it. It was was really interesting (laughs) and we're here to talk about it. We we are going to have uh, a bit of a discussion about our experience, uh, more so the ideas than the day itself. But I did I did think like this episode is probably going to be called the experience of David Bentley Hart because so good. he has so a book good. called the experience of God. So slightly different, slightly similar. I mean, according to David Bentley Hart's theology, the experience of David Bentley Hart is kind of the experience of God. Am I right? Lower lowercase G for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> until it becomes until we, isn't that is that the progression? Like the finite to the infinite or is the that, um the actually become God? Yeah, theosis. Yeah. Theosis. Well, yeah, I'm I'm still unclear about that. Um, mm. I, I haven't read you a gods yet, so you'll have to fill us in on that one, Mitch. But um Yeah. Well I mean yeah. I don't, I don't know if I can fill anyone in on it, but I like I have. I've, I can't even remember if I finished. Have you that, read it? I've at least read two thirds of it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's that's pretty good for for a David Bentley Hart book. Um, it is now before we before we get into the meat. Uh, I I do want to um, crack a bev. Did everyone hear? I just I did that because I was I wasn't sure whether we'd miss that bit, so I was like, oh, "You I'm always so thirsty. do it. You always do it too early." I'm so I'm thirsty I'm too, so but thirsty. I've been sitting here patiently waiting. It's, it's <laughs> sorry, man. Um, sorry, boys. Okay, so my my drink comes with a special shout out. It is from a brewer called Communion. Very cool. And and these beers arrived on my doorstep, courtesy of Caro, who's been on the pod, and her husband Luke who are legends and apparently the brewers at communion are also spiritual misfits. So there's a double shout out to the communion brewers in uh, Bernie in Tassie and to Caro and Luke. This is, this whole episode is dedicated to you. All right. Here is my cracking beer sound. Do your drinks come with any shout outs or backstory? I feel like spiritual themed, um, spiritual or Christian themed beers can be your new thing. Will. 
because our good friend Jack Turner has invited us to the brewery in Newcastle called, is it the Thirsty Messiah? The Thirsty Messiah. <laughs> fantastic <laughs> establishment. <laughs> I think that's a squad. Um, one, one of my good friends, um, Kieran White is his name. He moved to Norway. Um, gosh, this is a weird backstory. Anyway, my point is that he's also a brewer. And he is very much a spiritual misfit, you know, Christian, but kind of exploring, you know, these, these kind of themes. And, um, he, he's got a, a company, a beer brewing company called, um, Eucharist. Oh, wow. So, so I was like, yeah, it's like, is there a bit of a, like a a movement happening right now? You know, I did a beer appreciation with a dude. He, and he had a brewery. I don't know if it still exists. It was Eden something. Um, it was in the Southern Highlands. And um, it was really cool. Like he was teaching us all about brewing and beers and stuff. And he brought a bunch of the ones that he'd brewed. And um, like he told some, some some hilarious beer stories. But like when, when someone asked him, how did you get into brewing? And he said, oh, well, in the United States, you can't drink till you're 21. Or you can't buy alcohol till you're 21 or something. And he said, but you can buy hops and grain and water. <laughs> so... <laughs> So his whole his whole beginning of of brewing was just like randomly just buying the ingredients to make beer because you could. So it was cool. So it was good. really cool. That's a, that's a deconstructed beer. That people, mm. people that listen to this show will appreciate that. You know, it's um... <laughs> <laughs> only if you reconstruct it will because deconstructing well, yes. beer without reconstructing it, um, <laughs> you left you left in no man's land. Isn't that the idea? I think that definitely applies to the beer. It does frustrate me when people people know, jump to the hey, don't you deconstruct unless you got to reconstruct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, please don't just give me don't give me deconstructed beer. I, I would like a I want it put back together. Fermented beverage. <laughs> mm, okay, nice. so let's just um, let's give people a little intro to David Bentley Hart. How did each of you come to this fine gentleman's work? And um, what was it about his his thought that was helpful for you when you first sort of came across it? I can't remember exactly um, where I came across his name, um, but it was in the context where someone was talking about the most significant, you know, Anglophone theologians or like English-speaking theologians um, of our lifetime. And I always like NT Wright, cause you know, he was the, the most prominent and influential theologian that I knew. So I just assumed he would be, he would be in this list and he wasn't there. They named like three people, which was Rowan Williams, John Milbank and David Bentley Hart. Um, I think it might've even been like a gospel coalition um, article or something. This was years, like it's probably like you know, 10 years ago or something. Really? I think wow. maybe I'm, I'm only like, I'm guessing that it was that, but I can't, I can't, properly remember three Um, highly influential theologians to watch out for well no no because at the time (laughs) so this is the interesting thing he was before he released um that all shall be saved which is his book about universalism which i'm sure we'll get into he wrote a few books that were like i think he he, there was one entitled atheist delusions or something like that um Mm, yeah what what was it like christianity's fashionable enemies or something i can't remember the subtitle Mm. um so he like he was, you know, CPX. Even when John Dixon was there, that's the Center for Public Christianity. Mm. They interviewed him about that. Um, so about like the existence of God. So he was kind of like celebrated by these groups because he's a classical yeah. theist arguing against atheists. Um, and I think at the time, everyone he's on kind our of. Team. 
exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like that that weird coalition of people when you've got a common enemy. Like you allow. Yeah. And the thing is, yeah. as as we'll probably get into, um, if you are the enemy of David Bentley Hart, whether you are a person or a school of thought, <laughs> watch out because dude Mate. has some sass. He will oh unleash goodness. on you <laughs> for someone who doesn't believe in any sort of eternal wrath. He has some he long has some lasting wrath. wrath. I've heard him like yeah, he's in, in his in that all shall be saved. He he can he's so brutal, particularly towards Thomists and Calvinists. Um yeah. like he says some horrible things about them. And people have picked him up on it, but his defense is that he he says oh, firstly he says if an idea is stupid and morally abhorrent, it deserves to be like you deserves to be called as such but then he says he never attacks people individually he's it's always thoughts so it's the way it's the way that people mm. think it's the ideas that they have and if those more if those ideas are morally abhorrent you should be able to say so that's his defense of his um of his rhetoric yeah. but he does often call people stupid or what, what do you say about richard Dawkins? <laughs> i mean he loves he loves John? saying moral cretins <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did you first come across him, John? Um, I think it was pretty similar to Mitch. I may have been John Dixon writing about the experience of God. And um, I had been on a journey already, like trying to um, discover um, a concept of God that made more sense in light of my experience and also that was more cohesive um, because I had, you know, like many of us, I had grown up with that kind of um, dualistic take of God, which is nearly, nearly kind of deist, you know, like everything is about separation, you know, like um, you've been separated from God and like the only way to get back to God is through um, Christ's atonement, um, you know, and God just can't stand to look upon you because he's so angry. You know, all the penal substitution stuff. He's so angry, so he needs to get his his wrath out. So he pulls it out on his son instead of you. And then, you know, if you're a Calvinist, if you're lucky enough, you know, you were um, chosen from the beginning of time to be the elect. And if you're Arminian, you know, at least you have some sort of choice. Well, DBH wouldn't think so because mm-hmm. <laughs> he slams the mm-hmm. Armenian take on free will too. Um, but, um, yeah, so I um, had been um, flirting with, like, um, Eastern Orthodoxy um, mainly because of the shack, right? So mm. um, I read the shack and I was like, wow. You know, when it first came out, it was super liberating for me. And I was like, like, where is this guy getting his theology from? So, um, you know, Paul Young had Baxter Kruger, the Trinitarian theologian, doing a lot of conferences with him. So I started reading Baxter Kruger stuff. I started reading um, about like, um, looking into the fathers, church fathers that he was talking about, like Athanasius and, you know, a lot of the Eastern fathers. And I started to realize that, hang on, like, uh, this isn't this super kind of individualized thing where it's like, hey, like, if I pray the sinner's prayer, um, I'll have Christ in me. Um, I'll have the Holy Spirit in me, um, but if I mess up badly enough, you know, then I may lose the Holy Spirit and go to hell. Um, and um, 
but you know, it kind of like switched everything around. Like it's no, actually you're in Christ, you know? And, um, that idea was like so hard for me to understand at first because I was like, what, you know, like I had this very compartmentalized Western view of things, but the idea of us being in Christ, um, chosen in Christ, you know, as Ephesians talks about, um, from the beginning of time and it not being this sort of like Calvinist take of some people are chosen in Christ and others aren't, but all of us are chosen in Christ. Um, I kind of, I read a bit of Bart um, and um, t- the Torrance brothers and that kind of put me onto that as well. And um, then I started going down the path of, you know, panantheism rather than, um, you know, the kind of theistic personalism um, that that we had, um, that, you know, that God is uh, imminent and transcendent at the same time. And um, uh, I, yeah, I, I read that book by, by heart, um, The Experience of God, and that kind of solidified um, a lot of things that I'd already started believing, um, both intuitively and also through like reading other theologians. So yeah, that's how I came across mm. him first. And, um, and I did actually come across, um, some lectures that he gave, at least one lecture he gave on universalism, um, before he, um, uh, released that all shall be saved. And I had already been dabbling with at least hopeful, um, universalism through like Brad Jerzak and um, Robin Parry. Well, Robin Parry's like he's not a hopeful universalist. He's a, he is a universalist, but um, evangelical. Yeah, I'd already yeah. like read yeah. into like yeah, yeah, yeah. evangelical. Um, and uh, yeah, I came across um, Hart, and as I said before, like yeah, it was solidifying a lot of um, thoughts that had already been developing. So yeah. Mm. I think the thing about him is, um, you know, he's obviously uh, an incredible intellect. He hmm. is, you know, he's he's got he's got a brain on him. That is for sure. That brain operates maybe at a at a different level or on a different you know plane to many. Um, and you know, for me, for example, I had read. Love Wins by Rob Bell and that mm. gave me permission to think about different ideas of heaven and hell and different kind of interpretations. But yep. um, if that kind of opened up the questions, reading that All Shall Be Saved was like, oh my goodness. This is it. Mm. The, these are very well-formed, very robust, rigorous answers. Mm. Not just, well, what if? It's like this is an incredibly difficult to speak back to because his yeah. logic, his reasoning, his use of, and this is, a, you know, kind of one of the things about him is that he really can integrate that early church history with um, mm. brilliant kind of philosophical reasoning with a deep understanding of, scripture and you know hebrew and like mm. the dude knows many different streams very deeply and is able to integrate them in a way that you kind of feel like well yeah 
what what is there what is there to say back to some of that? He's he's got an intimidating intellect, and that's where it's like whether you're an atheist or um, an infernalist or you know whatever. Um, he has that kind of that kind of presence that is just yeah. is you know he's a bit of a towering, I guess, theological and philosophical figure. He 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 would say in response to that book, like all the criticisms or the arguments against it just had funded. It was as, as if they hadn't even read the book or nor understood his argument, <laughs> because so people yeah. would write these like essays saying why he was wrong, and he's like, and his response was often like, it seems like they haven't even read this because they completely misunderstand it. And I mean, I I think yeah. when I first read it, I was like, it's a it's a like it's a it's a pretty dense book, really, right? For a short book, like it's it's not easy going, but like I mm. think it. What what's kind of convinced me of some of his rhetoric is I've not read I actually think he's right. Every every rebuttal that I've read seems to misunderstand it. Or it's it like the rebuttal is um it goes so far as the next point that he makes, basically, right? Like and so the whole thing as an argument is it does seem like almost impenetrable or incontrovertible. Like it just holds together so well. Well, it feels at least like you know, I always did feel like back when the kind of atheist debates were a big thing, when you've got Dawkins debating, you know, whoever, or, you know, uh, William Lane Craig debating whoever, um, it always feels in those debates like the two people are just almost speaking different languages. Like they're not meeting each other in the same kind of landscape of ideas. They're just, they're speaking from different songbooks. And it, it feels like that, like a lot of the critiques of that all shall be saved, for example, it's like you're not even speaking within the same kind of framework. Mm. You know, you, you just, they don't feel like they're the same categories mm. of ideas. Yeah, I think a lot of that's got to do with the um, the idea that um, the, the heart's operating from a classical view of freedom, mm. whereas, um, you know, most people these days, their epistemology is founded upon like a libertarian view of freedom. Um, yeah, I think so that, we should, you know, if you want to define the differences between those two, for because for, a lot of people would just have no idea what are the dif- different views of freedom, for example. So what's the, what's the kind of difference between those two? Um, all right, I'll have a crack and then you can correct me if I, <laughs> if I say something wrong, Mitch. Well, I should say, <laughs> we'll just I keep, should we'll say. We'll keep filling in. It'll be like a painting. Someone starts painting and we can all just jump in with like some extra colors. For, yeah. for the listeners, you, both of you have read a lot more DBH than I have. And I feel like I'm, I'm a casual user. <laughs> I, I draw on David's ideas <laughs> at times when they help me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't but don't Mitch, we all you know? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Mitch always talks about like the difference between like the best version of an idea and then just like this, the kind of the street level version. And I'm like the mm. street level understanding of David Bentley Hart. I feel like you guys are further up the the understanding. So I am going to try and represent the every person, the every listener mm. who's like, what the. F- is libertarian freedom or you know like <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about I, um, I had a humbling moment because there, there, there could have been a potential fourth person on this call and when I asked that person if they wanted to do it uh who's like the person who's way smarter than me um he said oh look I, I don't know if I've completely wrapped my head around like Hart's theology or where he starts from 
um, and where he goes oh. to. So I don't feel like I should say anything <laughs> about it. And I was like, oh, no. To be honest, I've been shitting my, shitting my pants ever <laughs> since you asked me to come on the podcast because I'm like, you know, I have the dude's, yeah, the the dude's ideas and the way that he weaves them together into this kind of robust, cohesive system. It's like he's a walking systematic theology. Mm. Um, like the more of his stuff I read and the more I kind of see those ideas kind of appear in, in his in his work, I'm like, wow, like you're st- like his work is so coherent. <laughs> like mm. it's not like you suddenly come across an idea that you go, "Oh, that doesn't really gel with what you said in the other book." It's like, "Oh, no, that's literally an outworking of what you said in the other book." Mm. Um, mm. And it's I'm like, "Gosh, like to have that sort of brain, that sort of intellectual structuralism um is very impressive." So, yeah, I I've been shitting my pants. I'm like well, number one, I'm not formally trained in theology. <laughs> and number two, we're dealing with like, you know, this dude who is like a towering figure. That yeah. Well, thankfully, you're just at the digital pub and we're just having a chat about our experience. <laughs> and this is not <laughs> a class on the ideas of DBH. And dear listener... If if uh, if we say anything that uh, is an incorrect representation, like go back to the source material, go and read the books yeah. for yourself, and um, just assume that we're just we're just chewing the fat. Mm. Um, but having said that, what what are some different conceptions of freedom? Because I think that even that it's it, it's an assumed when we talk about freedom exactly, in most yeah. conversations. Like, and free will is such a big evangelical defense of mm. hell, for example, where it's like, well, God's given people free will, but then we're just, it's just assumed that there's only one definition of freedom or free will. And we all know what that is. So do we want to start to maybe just tease out some of the different options there and what we understand DBH to consider freedom? Do you want to go first, Mitch? Um. You know, I was I was hoping to fill in the the painting a bit later, but I can give it a crack. All right. Um. Yeah, I think I think for we we have talked about about it on a pod before, and I think th- this is actually super fundamental to heaps of stuff that that um that um that DBH thinks about things, but um uh the kind of I guess the classical the the libertarian view of freedom is that you are you are free to literally kind of do anything right so you can make this mm. choice or that choice or you can do this or you can do that and it's like it's this picture that, that there's nothing constraining any kind of decision that you make um, You're um a blank slate a blank slate yeah who can make what, whatever kind of decision um you know you want in any kind of situation now we all kind of know that's not even true really but i guess that's the way that we think about it that we should be free to be able to make like good decisions or bad decisions and for no apparent reason i think and that's really important part like you don't have to have a reason for making the decision you just get to make it um and that kind of starts to get to david bentley hart's criticism of it um is that every decision you make kind of has to have a reason or it has to have a tell us you should be trying to achieve something um, so he doesn't think there's really anything as like a libertarian freedom. Um, what he would say is that um, your 
Um, oh, how would you explain it? That every, like, I have every- a quote. I have a quote from him on the day that may help. Yeah, go, go, go. He said, "He said all desire is for the good, however thwarted it may be by error, yeah, sin." Yeah. And it's this idea that even in people's bad choices, they're still trying to pursue the good with a capital G. It's just that their freedom is constrained because they're not actually truly free to see with clarity what is the good, the beautiful, the holy. So yeah, so to be is that kind of getting at it? Yeah, so to be free for David Bentley Hart, like to be completely free. So God is completely free and then can't do otherwise, like other than his nature, can't pursue anything but good good goodness, truth, and beauty, um, like the transcendental. So you can't do anything against those because you are truly free and unconstrained by things that would stop you from choosing them. So he gives an example in that all shall be saved where he says, like, if, if you see someone thrusting their hand into a fire, like over and over again, you don't say, oh, that person's free. Like they're free to be doing that. Mm. You say that person has some kind of like psychopathology that's making them do that. There's actually a constraint on their freedom because a truly free person yeah. Um, is not going to do that over and over again. They're going to choose the thing that is for their good, and then because their good is tied up with the good of everything, they're going to kind of choose that um, as well. So it's like every every action has like a an end point or something that you're trying to achieve. And the further mm. you go back, and the more you ask why are they trying, why are they doing that, um, you can always find a more base reason, and that goes all the way back to again a desire or pursuit of goodness, truth, or beauty. Mm. Which just makes so much sense. You think about even like a, a an easy to go to example is around addiction where it's like, yeah. okay, the surface level behavior might be um, substance use, but we know, most people know that beneath that there is a desire for connection yeah. or there is a desire for the alleviation of suffering. And so already you even go down to that layer and it's like, oh, okay, like that's a lot more, I can have a lot more understanding for someone wanting to alleviate suffering mm. than I have for someone wanting to inject heroin. Mm. But when you come, you know, you, you realize, okay, everything is kind of, there's something beneath everything. And at the heart of it, God has created us to seek the good, the beautiful, the just, and we would be if we were free, mm. but that's the whole thing. Mm. Like we're not, we're not truly free, which even as I hear myself say that, it feels like a betrayal to my younger self who would have so passionately and fiercely said the universe is not a deterministic place or that, that we do have that kind of really open freedom. Mm. So it's, it's a paradigm shift. But, and it's also like I guess in the kind of modern popular view of theology we are free and then we get our consequences heaven hell whatever but this flips it where it's almost like we are constrained and we experience the consequences Mm. but we are in the process of being freed Mm. it it happens the other way around it's 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 consequences first and then freedom eventually rather than the other way around does that make sense this gets oh john i want to hear you on this actually you go I was just going to say, like, I think it's important to note that he's he's Eastern Orthodox, mm. um, so he has a very different take on original sin mm. uh, to say your you know your classic Calvinist, um, you know, who would say that we're all totally depraved. Therefore, we literally cannot um, make decisions um, that are good 
because we're that corrupt, right? Whereas he would, and I think, well, N.T. Wright's actually pushed back on this idea as well because um, he's, well, he's not a Calvinist either, um, to say that, no, like our most innate fundamental nature is being image bearers of the divine is good, right? Mm. And then uh, that was corrupted by sin. Mm. Um, rather than the other way around, you know, that we hear a lot, you know, with the Augustinian and then later on Calvinist take that we're, we're all thoroughly sinful and we can't choose anything good. But it's it's interesting because in that sense, there's a bit of a similarity between Hart's view and the Calvinist view that um, the God liberates you, right, to make a good decision. Uh, to start being able to make good decisions, you know, so you're not enslaved to sin and enslaved to death. Um, the, the, but the key difference, obviously, is that for Calvinists, it's only elect, only the elect who can do that. But, um, but Hart would say, well, no, all of us are the elect, you know. Um, mm. uh, so I just wanted to jump in because I can imagine, you know, a bunch of people going, well, you know, I got taught that I'm totally depraved and mm. therefore I can't make any decisions. Mm. Um, because a whole bunch of verses, you know, that often have been mistranslated or misinterpreted. Um, even the one we were talking about the other day, you know, the the heart is deceitful, wicked beyond all things. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, like I was, um, uh, I was reading an article by Brad Jerzak, just to give you a bit of context, context um, Mitch, I was reading an article mm. by Brad Jerzak saying that the, the way the Septuagint, um, translates that verse is um, the heart is deep beyond all things and it is the man. Yeah, wow. Like, this is a completely so different. So radically, it's the opposite. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, and then obviously, like, this gets ingrained in, like, our thinking and our emotions. Like, we can't trust ourselves because, mm. you know, at a, at a most basic level where we're, we're we're sinners and um so i think for me like um that classical view of freedom that no actually beneath that Mm. on a more truer level um you actually long for the good um Mm. and Mm. you know you doing anything that kind of moves you away from the good is and I think Chesterton yeah. said something like this as well. Like yeah. he, he talked about, you know, the man who goes to a brothel is actually ultimately longing for love. Um, yeah. And um, I think Lewis it, as well, it's a like very liberating perverted desire thing, right? Like the desire for food gets perverted and that kind of stuff, like desire for sex, like they're all like for the good, but they get perverted as opposed to they have good yeah. desires that get, that go awry. It, yeah. It feels like in the, you know, people call it worm theology, the kind of like really Calvinist you are, you can't trust your heart and you just, Mm. you are deceived. It feels sort of like that puts the blame on you for any constraints to your freedom. Whereas maybe what I'm drawn to in this idea is it actually, it does not put the blame on you. You are, you are a a good creation Mm. and there are all of these constraints on many levels external mm. that exist and you're not like you're not the dirty rotten sinner that's responsible for you know um because it's kind of weird that they're, they're kind of the the libertarian thing almost gets mushed in with that yeah. calvinist view where it's like 
you are super deceived and you can't really do anything about it, but also you're responsible and you should have made a better choice. It's well, kind of like the messaging is all, it gets all mushed together. And I think this is where the, the big difference between the Calvinists and someone like David Bentley Hart is really apparent, right? Because the Calvinists, like you said, John, say the same thing. You're acting, you're acting according to your nature. So when you sin, you're acting according mm. to your nature. So you do like you're doing really something that you can't help but do <laughs> because that's who you are. Um, mm. whereas David Bentley Hart has a similar kind of picture of freedom that, but your nature is by nature, you are by nature good. Um, mm. and that that has been corrupted or it's been like set off course, mm. um, through sin, death and the devil, like in the world. And so what you need to be is to be freed from sin, death and the devil in order to act true mm. to your nature. So there's this picture that like when Adam and Eve come into the world, um, I, th- I can't remember if this comes from Brad Jerzak or like, I don't think it's a heart particularly, but it fits pretty, pretty well with the way that he thinks. But Adam and Eve are, are born not complete, but perfect. Like, so they're innocent in all ways, um, but they still need mm. to develop as human beings. Right. And it, that's like the picture of like all humans, like we're actually born innocent, um, but not complete. We have to morally develop and we need to, you know, we're called out of nothing into the infinite. We need to like progress and we need to uh, move towards a greater depth of understanding. Um, but what you are from the very beginning is good mm. um, and good. made in the image of God. Original goodness. Yeah, original goodness or blessing or, yeah. Hey, I hope you are really enjoying this episode of Spiritual Misfits. You may have noticed that our episodes are ad-free and we don't have a Patreon page. We want our podcast and online community to be as accessible and available to as many people who need it without money getting in the way. I want to shout out the good folks at Meeting Ground Church who help make this possible. As a small alternative faith community, we see this work as our offering to the broader spiritual landscape of Australia and beyond at this time. We don't have any external funding. The resources used to create this show are truly from the grassroots. And I'm personally really grateful for every person who helps make that a possibility. If you do want to support the show, uh, if you have the means, here are three simple ways that you can. One, spread the word. Almost everyone who listens to this pod heard about it through word of mouth. You don't have to spread this good news to avoid any form of punishment. Um, But if it's actually good, it's not that hard to share, is it? Two, rate and review. Uh, It genuinely helps other listeners find it and gives the show a little more cred. So jump on your listening app now and hit the five stars and write a couple sentences. Three, if you do want to donate some dollars, whether as a one-off or in an ongoing way, uh, there are details for how to do that on the Spiritual Misfits website and in the show notes of this episode takes a fair bit of time to create this work and we're grateful for every dollar given to help towards that cost your support doesn't earn anything around here so whether or not you do any of the above you are welcomed you're loved and we're glad you're here with us let's get back into the episode now at this point there is a part of me that's like i kind of i kind of want to have some things two ways because I want to say that so much of our freedom is constrained and often this is the cause for harmful kind of behavior. Mm. But I also still intuitively and experientially and I think philosophically want to say that we do have meaningful agency, some meaningful degree of choice, agency, freedom. So Mm. what, what in your understanding is the kind of DBH, you know, or, or even where you just end up with kind of like preserving 
meaningful choice and agency while acknowledging that there's uh, always degrees of constraint. This is where I get fuzzy on my what what um, Hart thinks actually, because like he's very and and the Eastern Fathers are the same, right? They're they're real big defenders of free will actually. That you have you mm. have to freely choose the good and you have to freely choose God. Mm. And ultimate restoration is not some kind of coercion like God has led you to, um, mm. you know, forced you to make a decision. It's that eventually mm. through education, um, through enlightenment. Yeah, and that's sometimes through suffering and pain and difficulty and like hell and purgatory or whatever language you want to use. Yeah, correction, yeah. Yeah, correction. Eventually, you will freely choose the thing that is good, you know, and ultimate goodness being being God. So that, so there is a sense that he wants to – he is maintaining agency yeah. and your ability to make real true choices. Um, but then I don't know – I'm not 100% sure exactly how that fits because his defense of well, – um, oh, sorry, John, you go. Oh, I was just going to jump in um, on that because I think he actually illustrated it quite well with using the analogy of baseball. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? Is when, that like um, your, your, your you return know, home or whatever? Having or? A, yeah, 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 that eventually everyone gets home, but mm. like everyone's going to have a different journey. It's going to take people. Like someone might have a home run, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So I, I suspect that he would he would say that, Ultimately, everyone's going to get to that point of, you know, that that kind of grandiose eschatological vision that Paul has, you know, where God will be all in all, you know, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but um, how long that takes depends mm. on um, the individual's freedom, right? So we have no idea, you know, and that's that comes down to like his translation of the Greek for, you know, for instance, in Matthew 25, where, um, you know, it talks about eternal judgment, right? But the Greek is uh, aeonios kolesis, right? Mm. So it's the age of correction, right? Mm. And we so it's an age and we don't know how long it takes. Mm. So him, along with all of these, like, uh, you know, f- key figures um, in church history, like Gregory of Nyssa, um, um, uh would origin. say that um exactly yeah origin yeah. um i just like saying nisa because he oversaw the council of nicaea right because yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. he's the same when you he's say origin they'll be like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Ooh, they'll be like heretic. oh he's a heretic you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is <laughs> true but you know um but uh yeah, yeah nisa um yeah that the the idea that um uh we are we can either be com- complicit with um, sin or complicit with the work of the Spirit in us mm. or the work of Christ in us, um, drawing us. You know, f- like he quoted that passage from Paul talking about um, moving from glory to glory, you know, like you still have the freedom to respond to the work of the Spirit in terms of how quickly you transform more so into likeness mm. of Christ. And mm. that may take ages, you know. Literally ages, eons, aeonios, you know. Um, But, and that's where I see him integrating the aspect of free will. And he does this as well very much with his theodicy. Mm. Um, uh, You know, if you read um, Doors of the the Sea, sea, um, where basically he's he's taking like an early church father's take on, um, on the problem of evil as as far as I know as well, in terms of integrating like um, 
basically uh, spiritual forces of evil um, mm. that are somehow impacting um, what's going on in everyday life, um, um, thwarting our decisions, having an impact on us. I mean, some of the church fathers even believed, I remember this from a Greg Boyd book, that some of the church fathers even believed that like the principalities and powers would even have a, an amount of control over certain geographical mm. regions, right? So like they would yeah. say that, you know, if there was like a something horrible that happened, you know, a so-called act of God isn't an act of God at all. Like it was an act of a, yeah, an, an evil an principality, or, um, an yeah. archon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's this sort of like um, cosmological um, warfare theodicy, right, um, that's, that's going on where like – it's so so much more complicated than 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 anyone thought, um, and it's also mm. interesting because it's very yeah. it pushes back very much on like that typical modern kind of naturalist rationalist take that hey this is all rubbish and fairy tales. But here we have this towering yeah. you know intellectual figure saying hey like that I actually believe in the idea of spiritual evil being out there and spiritual good being out there and that affecting our day-to-day life. Well, he's famous for believing in fairies. So he and Sally yeah. Vickers <laughs> and, um, and uh, John Milbank, they all believe in fairies. And so I, I had the funny experience um, I had the funny experience of accidentally meeting David, uh, WH, in the bathroom three times. <laughs> so just randomly through the course of the, like, three days that I saw him, we just happened to just go had to- a sne- had a sneaky sword fight. <laughs> You were just waiting in the bathroom for two days, waiting for those three times when he needed to use it. It felt like he was going to have that thought because we just honestly, like three times in a row, I came out of the stall and he was, he was in there. And I was like, he's going to think I'm stalking him. But it was um, it was just literally, um, that it was just before the sessions and I always like pee before a session because I don't want to like, you know, feel uncomfortable. Hey man, and I think your free he was, will was constrained, right? It wasn't a choice. Anyway, it was just yeah. the constraints of the bladder. And so I'm thinking like by the, by the second time I thought, Oh man, next time I've got to think of something like interesting to say to the guy so I can have like a genuine conversation with him. And so the thing I decided um, to say, cause I thought it could be taken in any way. So I said to him as we were leaving, it was the first time he, like he, he seemed to put out that there was no, there was no towels to dry your hands on. So it seemed, and I was like, mm. oh, man, I'm sorry. We've just got the blower. Like that was the first thing that I said. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and I was like, Welcome was, to Australia, mate. Yeah, we just got the blower. <laughs> like, that was so stupid. So then I'm like, i got to think of something charming and interesting to say. So the next time we were walking out and I said, oh, David, I've really enjoyed your work and I credit with you with helping me believe in fairies again. <laughs> And I'm like, this is a great, Gold. this is a great line, right? And then he he looks at me and he goes, "Well, um, you know that the evidence is vast in every tradition, in every part of the world, <laughs> every like every like different people group has said like there are such a things as, as fairies." And he goes, "I don't tell this story often, but um, maybe I, he said maybe I've told it once before. I have heard him tell it actually with an interview with Sally Vickers, but he tells this story about going to a particular wood." And like just hearing these voices and freaking out and kind of running out and being like convinced that they're kind of nymphs or fairies or something. Anyway, just a cool okay. DBH anecdote right. um, for everyone. I, but I love to it. go, so I to go to John's it. point, he that, that that's a huge part of his picture of the world is that there are other forces at play, um, other yeah. things that um, that that have a say in how things go, and that sounds exotic. But then, like, you read C.S. Lewis and he's saying the same things, right? Like, the ultimate destiny is for all these powers to find their place under Christ. 
So like mm. as Christ is the the organizing or ruling principle, like all the the gods, mm. you know, the so-called gods who were worshipped by other nations, um, they all find their place under Christ and all that that whole kind of spiritual realm is realigned um, mm. under Christ. So, yeah. Okay. Sorry. There are a few things that I feel like we need to go into here, um, you know, and and it's kind of all part of, again, like mapping out the DBH worldview. But this this also is where I do, uh, there are some things that I feel attention with. So I'm very okay with the idea of um, like when we talk about evil or even when we talk about, you know, um, the, the, Satan, the Satan, the Satan, like this idea of there being like some sort of, I think Brian Zahn says Satan is uh, more than a metaphor but less than a personality. And I like that because it's like there's some sort of sense in which there are forces, again, of corruption and evil that go beyond um, just what seems like logical from just adding up individual people's bad choices. Mm. So, there, uh, you know, I, c- I can get around the idea of there being lots of unexplained things, mysteries, whatever we want to call them, etc. That's all cool. But here's the thing. A big part of David's, like, framework which we talked a fair bit about the other day, was that he talks about a lot of, I guess, uh, contemporary theological visions paint God as, like John was saying, separate from creation. So you've got Mm. God over here and then you've got creation over here and God is kind of occasionally or regularly, depending on your view, dipping in, interacting, but like, um, you know, there's this separation. And David says that a big part of the problem is that people view God as just another being among beings. So you're a being, I'm a being, the fairies are being, the angels are being, God's just another being who happens to be bigger and more powerful, but is also kind of within the same framework. And his whole thing is that actually this is where we need to recapture a sense that God is not just another being among among beings, but God is is what all being emerges from and exists within. And so you, if you have any being, whether you're the human, the fairy, the tree, your being only exists within the ground of being, which is God. God is what all things are held within. And John mentioned panentheism at the beginning, which is kind of, you know, people might be familiar with the term pantheism, which is that all things in the universe just add up to God, basically. Panentheism says that the universe is, is again, all held within God, but that God is also somehow more than just infinite, the also more separate components yeah. of the universe. Yeah, yeah. Tra- but so this- well, but he, it was interesting oh, yeah. on the day because he, um, he tried to say the distinction between those two things um, is made up and not real because like the, the yes. things that we call pantheism really are like more similar to, you know, what people would say panentheism is anyway. Um he did blow that line. Which was interesting. Yeah, but this I is where, okay, that. so here's my, here's my question. Honest question is like, I, I, I love this. And it's been a liberating paradigm shift for me in recent years to view everything as truly in Christ, everything as within God. It, it really helps me to see all people, all different religions, all different, you know, experiences of the world and to see all of them as part of the divine being. 
and to see all of it as belonging. You know, Richard Raw would say everything belongs. Like in some ways it really helps me with that, helps me to do away with the separation that is so unhelpful. But then I'm like, well, wait a second. Where it, Does this mean that evil exists within God? It, does this mean that evil is a part of God? Does this mean that the archons that David might believe exist, like are they... Are they part of God's nature? Are they part of God's being? Well, you would say the the archons are the archons are rational, like spiritually rational creatures, like us, right? So they they have the same mm. the same spiritual or freedom that we have to make like good and bad decisions. But I mean, we did talk about this a little bit the other week at um the Toronto Inn was it the, the Toronto Inn Toronto. <laughs> Toronto Inn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, while while pub uh, what was it called um. Pub choir yeah, yeah, was pub happening pub in the background, which was the most heartwarming it thing was like, I've experienced. It was genuinely beautiful. <laughs> it was a really good night. Um, I mean, so so for for someone a classical theist like David Bentley Hart, but all classical theists, um, evil doesn't have its own substance or existence. It is evil mm. is privation. It's deprivation. It's the it's the deprivation of the good or um, it's parasitic. Um, it doesn't have its own kind yeah. of ontological existence and that's like a really important part so so yeah everything is contained within god but evil isn't even even really a thing so it doesn't have so so it's not part doesn't have to be part of god's nature but my pushback is what's the alternative the alternative is a dualism like a genuine dualism that something else exists uh other than god um and where does that something else come from like if if it if it either has its own existence, so you end up with again the gods are just a being among a couple of other beings, or it was generate, generated by God Himself. So I don't, mm. I don't think you get out of, you don't get out of that problem by like jumping in the the process theology camp or the open theism camp. I don't think. Oh hey, I didn't even bring. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm just trying to say I what's the that's, alternative. It's yeah. lurking in the background. I, it's lurking in the background, and I will I, name it for any if anybody who listened to the trip. The trip fuller episode, most downloaded episode of the podcast mm-hmm. to date. Um, you know, trip is incredibly compelling, and if you listen mm-hmm. to trip describe open theism process theology, you know it's so. I just find myself nodding along because so much of it makes sense experientially, mm-hmm. of of a world in which there are genuine possibilities in which God is not um, kind of orchestrating everything again a lot of these ideas like they're they're kind of they can look like similar ideas that are worse ideas (laughs) because that's that's where i'm like if you line up all the nuances of calvinism arminianism open theism classical theism they kind of all have like overlapping parts but then Mm. divergent Mm. parts so some people might be getting lost with, with some of this. And fair enough, I'm lost in, in some of the maze of this. Yeah. I agree with you that the alternative of there being another another being that is generative and self-sufficient is problematic. I like, and this is kind of the language you know, that, that DBH uses when describing God, is that God is the only ultimate reality and everything else is contingent mm. and... Yeah contingent things depend on something else for their Mm -hmm. existence. And I just think philosophically that makes complete sense of why there's anything here, but why for everything here, there is a first and ultimate non-contingent cause Mm. that seems 
kind of self-evident. Otherwise, you get into a very wormholy, paradoxical situation. Mm. But then well, it's still, I guess this is still the biggest problem that even, I think David would openly acknowledge that the problem of suffering and evil is still the biggest thing that you can't kind of neatly resolve, even if you have the best theological vision in the world, because it's still like the level, this is kind of my pushback. I, I, I the whole idea that evil is just a negation or a, um, like it doesn't really exist it just feels like it would be so heartless to say that to someone who is suffering very tangible outcomes the effects as of, a result of evil in oh, the world. John, I want to hear what you have to say because I feel like you've been – you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, gosh, there's a lot of things you said just then, Will. Mm. Um, I think I would add to say that rather than – obviously, like, that is the classic kind of – I remember Augustine saying that, you know, that, that evil is – the privation of the good. I think it's helpful seeing it as the corruption of the good. So, um, and sure, maybe this is just semantics, but it is, you know, with um, free will agents having some level of, of freedom that's also been tainted by, you know, all of these dynamics that we've already discussed, like um, your you're you're left with like this vision at least the way that i see it is that either either you can partner uh with the trajectory of existence or the trajectory of non-existence mm. right um and i think it was mm. um greg boyd put that in one of his books he kind of got the got that from um from from Bart saying you know Bart had this idea called das nichtige which is the nothingness um, and I tend to put, you know, sin and, and, uh, yeah, sin in that metaphysical category. I, I can't see how it can exist in any other mm. category. It's like the, anything that moves towards non, non-existence. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to, at least as far as I understand, to, to understand that in classical theism, like we discussed before, like you still have degrees of freedom, right? To within those parameters that have been created by God, and they're very wide parameters. Hence, why we see so much destruction, death, and evil, right? Um, I was a bit confused when when uh, Hart said that really it's pantheism, but then he went on to say that a lot of people don't truly understand what pantheism is. Mm. So I was like, is he just being like an elitist about semantics? Um, Because, you know, language is contextual and whether like a word is, there is a truer definition of, of a word or not by some academics doesn't, often matter when you're talking to when you're you're thinking about how it's used in popular contexts right so i was left thinking like is he really like from a popular perspective is he a panantheist because his theology definitely seems to suggest that he's a panantheist right um because Mm. he's um because as i understand pantheism the idea of you know everything and everyone is god and that um 
you know, at least certain versions of pantheism have the idea of the yin and the yang, you know, that like uh, evil and good originates from God. Well, Hart would definitely not say that, right? Mm. So, um, so I don't know how he would um, clear that up. Um, maybe Mitch knows. What do you think, Mitch? Well, what I took him to be saying is that there's no serious religion that is like the pop version of pantheism, right? So that that picture that we said everything, like the sum total of everything is God. I think what he was saying is there's no serious mm. religion that actually thinks that. So, yeah. um, and he makes he does make a big thing about serious religions and non-serious religions. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. like there are like there are a bunch of like pop versions of anything, right? But he doesn't like he doesn't feel the need mm. to have to talk about them. But like whether it's like Vedanta or you know like so part of the Hindu world or like Buddhism or something, I think he would just say mm. that what pantheism is to them is pretty much what he's talking about anyway, and what we're all talking yeah, about right. as panentheism. That's what I took mm. him to be saying at that point. Okay. And that's the in thing you of, say that I referenced before about the difference between exactly. the yeah, best yeah. version of the idea and the everyday usage. Yeah. So I mean, he does, yeah. and I think there's a yeah, he does fall into the danger of telling other people what they think at that point. Um, yeah. So, but like he's who like I'm not going to do that. But maybe he actually he he is a scholar of religion and not just Christian religion. In answer to the well, in answer to a, the that's, question, that's a part of the just real quick. Just that's that's a part of the experience of DBH that I think is interesting. Where it's like, yeah, I I suppose does the level of intellectual robustness make up for the apparent arrogance and elitism mm. that comes through? Maybe that's a separate question, but it is, a, it is a great question. Mm. Sorry, you go, Mitch. No, I was gonna, I was gonna riff on the the evil thing. Um, but do you, do you want to just switch that? Oh, I'll just say, I'll just say the the thing. So uh, on the day, and he's talked about this before. So his his explanation of where evil comes from is that, um, so all like, not even God can create, um a finite being uh, or an infinite being without a finite existence. So he says that every tra- all the trajectory of all spiritual rational creatures is to start finite and become infinite, you know, so to become gods. Mm. And so he says not even God can create, you know, an infinite being um, just out of, you know, without having a beginning, without having a finite beginning. So everyone is like coming into the world and becoming or moving towards the infinite. So we're coming out of mm. nothingness. Our trajectory is towards not- from nothingness into the infinite and so evil is like a necessary possibility in that to have spiritual like free rational creatures it's a necessary possibility um so it's not contained within god uh, but that privation Mm. is a necessary possibility for that trajectory um as you come out of Mm. nothingness so what nothingness is is that is you know is evil like and that's where you're coming i do i do really like I like that, and I really like the way you phrased it before, John. Do you want to participate with things in the direction of non-existence mm. or existence? Because it's this idea that, all again, all things shall be saved, all things will be reconciled. If you have a Christianity that's worth anything, that seems mm. to me at least like a foundational belief that all things will be made whole and healed. And so that in some sense, um, there, there obviously is no eternal life of evil, Evil cannot be eternal in a genuinely Christian vision of things, maybe. You know, again, a huge idea that was discussed on the day and that we talked about afterwards was this idea of theosis Mm. and that 
the trajectory in kind of Hart's theological vision of all things is that all things will be um, made part of God, of the everlasting, of the infinite, hmm. in a way that, that kind of um, there is no separation at that point. There is no evil at that point. You know, we are, we are part, we are in Christ. Christ is all. There's hmm. nothing else. And so I suppose the heresy hunters kind of hear this idea and they think, well, you know, it's almost like a form of idolatry that you will become God. But it's also, um, again, how do you maintain any ongoing existence separate from God in a way that actually makes sense eternally? It's So theosis is kind of this, this is how everything that appears to be separated is put back together again, mm. um, but I, I, I this is this is a big idea, and it's 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 mm. a again it's like very difficult to get your head around because for me it brings up various questions around a big thing I suppose is this sense of continuity that the the Christianity that I have grown up with said that in some sense will as an individual would continue on into eternity as will the individual. But I don't know. In in a picture of theosis, does will continue, or does will just become part of a whole in which will is no longer kind of recognisable as an individual? And I don't know if there's necessarily. Maybe you can have theosis and the continuation of multiple personalities. But what are your thoughts around this theosis kind of concept? I think. I, I mean. I. I think on the day at lunchtime we were talking about this a little bit, like the, the NT Wright vision of, you know, the kingdom is basically just a, conti- a continuation of here. So his old, his old piece, like the new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds, it's a redeemed and restored earth. We have a physical existence that is largely like this one, but without suffering or pain or evil. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. at least that's how, how I read him, what he, what I read him to be saying. Um, and theosis does, you know, and and in a lot of ways, like I think even Tim Tim Kelly used to say this. He's like, oh, whatever you miss out on now, you get then. You know, if you miss out on hugs mm. and love and laughter and you know, food, mm. great food and strength, it's like the the Christian vision is like whatever you miss out on here, you get there. Unless no need you for FOMO. well, unless you, unless you have the um, unless you're unfortunate enough to be born in a non Christian family <laughs> or uh, <laughs> or. In, as part of a different religion, then you're screwed. But for those of you who are fortunate enough to be part of the chosen, um, and there is something so deeply kind of attractive about that. And theosis does start to go, oh, like you start to go, do, well, do I, you know, like the loved ones that I've missed, do I know them in in some kind of like tangible or physical way? And I think Hart would say yes. Like I think he would he would say there is a physicality to eternity. Mm. Um, because he, in, in he, the Logos, like you have that. Um, I'll just say one more thing, John. This is actually a C.S. Lewis idea. Yes. Sorry, I feel like I, okay. I'm j- I keep like jump trying to jump in. No, Sorry. no, you're good. <laughs> um, it's all in Christ. We are. We're becoming. <laughs> we're theosising. Right we're all going to be we're saved anyway. <laughs> so, I think yeah. C- so C.S. Lewis had this idea because I think he like he believed in theosis. Um, I can't even remember what book it's in, but he says the yeah, Great Divorce probably in the Great Divorce. Well, he he makes his point. Well, it doesn't explicitly say theosis, but um, it it talks about the trajectory of becoming more real. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, more and more real. Like, so yeah, the, um, the... becoming less ghostly, more, more real. real. Yeah. Um, well, and, he, um, 
he yeah, kind of linked it to the Trinity, and he said, like in in Buddhist theology or like in you know Buddhist understanding, you become a drop in the ocean, right? So you're in the drop in like you're a drop and, and you get absorbed into the ocean which is you know the great oneness of of all things and god um mm. and he said like actually a trinitarian picture enables that to be true but also for you to keep your distinct personhood mm-hmm. um mm. so you you it seems weird that you become like another member of the trinity like that seems that seems yeah. if anything's like heretical but i swear i swear he says it somewhere i don't know where but he he has that line where he says, well, like a Trinitarian picture means that you keep your personhood whilst also becoming a drop in the ocean, basically. Yeah, well, that that makes sense to me because I I one I, I watched this um, uh, video chat that he did with some guy where he was asked about this, you know, what about our pets? What about mm. our animals? Um, and he was very strong on the idea mm. of uh, apocatastasis, that's mm. it, right? Um, including everything, yeah. that all things shall be reconciled, and, and in some way we're going to know, like our pets, we're going to know everything that we experience in this life, but obviously in a more you know, glorious way. Um, mm. So I don't think that he, he negates the idea of um, us somehow being individuals it's just that we're fully and properly integrated um within love within the trinity within everything as Mm. it should be you know and i think that's pauline language as well you know there's a lot of um passages uh, where paul talks about everything being reconciled in christ everything being put back as it should be, you know, under the lordship of Christ, um, integrated. Yeah, I think that's a good word for yeah. it. The other image they use, I think, on that point, John, is I, I don't know if it's Hart himself, but like other Orthodox theologians, maybe John Bear uses this one. Um, he he talks about, um, you know, like when you're purifying metals, right? And so when you throw mm. like whatever kind of metal into the fire, like it burns off everything that's not. So again, that's like the evil. Um, but then the metal takes on the properties of the fire, so it continue it keeps mm. its own properties, but it takes on the properties of the fire. So heat and light mm. and um, what other properties of fire are there? I don't know. <laughs> but, um, heat and light. Let's just say those two. So you like. I love. It's a classic analogy. Like refining fire oh. is something we talk about all the time. But it's like I am no goldsmith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do not actually know <laughs> much about. <laughs> I got the general gist yeah. of it, but <laughs> no. So he's like, yeah, you end up taking on the properties of God as well, right? So that gets absorbed into your into your mm. essence. The other one is they talk about the burning bush, so it's fully aflame but not consumed. Um, so you're aflame with the life of God, but still, you know, not not consuming yeah. the essence of you. And and, and it is very orthodox. Mm. Like Athanasius talked about, um, you know, God becoming man so that man may become God. Um, which yeah. I, I think he would find in you know um, that Peter passage talking about sharing in in his divinity. Um, um, I mean, I can't even I can't remember it word for word now, but um, that's okay. No one here expects you to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a cool Sorry to the biblicists, <laughs> but that's it's it is a, it's a it, when you go back and read, and I bought the. David Bentley Hart, you know, New Testament translation on the day. And I've been reading that. And his goal is to, as much as possible, obviously acknowledging that even he, like anybody, has their 
translation biases kind of baked mm. in, but his goal is to translate in a way that's like bluntly literal and free of as much theological doctrine and prejudice that has been overlaid over hundreds of mm. years. You read the NIV and you don't realize it, but you're reading doctrine overlaid on the mm. text. And he's mm. trying to just make it kind of as blunt as possible, even where the grammar gets just awkward by writing. But, but it, it, when you go back to the New Testament and you have this sort of lens of looking for in Christ and this kind of like all things becoming one, this kind of more Eastern meets Western mix, it's it's so striking how much of it is there when you peel back a lot of the doctrine mm. that you have been oh. handed over the top. Oh, I mean the whole thing about patristic universalism. You know, the the more you 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 dive into history and like, you know, um, the work of J. I think it's J. W. Hansen and uh, Alaria Romelli. Um, oh, she's great. Man. Where where um, you see that, like, in the first 500 years, um, there were six major theological schools and only one of them um, taught um, eternal conscious torment. And then four of them uh, taught um, universalism, patristic universalism. And I think that's another big thing that we need to clear up for, like, you know, especially those that are scared of, like, does this just mean pop universalism where, like, it doesn't matter what I do, everyone's just going to get saved like this, right? And, like, the, you know, the consequences of evil are, are just ignored. And that that's not at all the case in mm. patristic universalism. Mm. Like, it believes that there, there, there is judgment that everyone has to pass through um, and some will be there for much longer than others, mm. right? And it's going to be painful, Um and uh, anyway, <laughs> coming back to what I was saying before, but um, you you see that in history, like some of these like major um, figures in the church were uh, universalists, and that it was common. I mean, even even um, Augustine wrote about it being common um, during his time. Um, so I think uh, it's it's super important to 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 see that. Hey, this isn't just some sort of like you know feel good progressive thing, and not that I want to like <laughs> have a go at, at progressives in general. I, I am progressive in a lot of ways, um, but it's also like this is deeply orthodox, mm. right? It's um, ancient, yeah. It's it's yeah. both. It's yeah. I mean, I think a lot of things are um, when we when we dig beneath the the historical surface, ideas that seem new and in vogue are often. A recovery. You know, recapitulations yeah. of ancient ideas. Well, it, and it's really cool when you realize that, oh, I'm not going off the deep end. I'm mm. going I'm going into the depths of yeah. my tradition. Th- there's a stream that's that's been around for yeah. so long that you can just jump into. I um I love the the Theosis stuff as it was just discussed. I feel like it does make me hopeful the idea that there can be both a, continu- a continuation of life in some way as we know it while also being completely unified and, and made whole. And I, I feel like, you know, as we come towards the end of this chat, he did, he did, I wrote some notes about some of my favourite phrases that he used on the day and he talked about how we are words within the word. Mm. We are utterances within the utterance. Yeah. We are log- logoi, logi in within the logos. The logos. Yeah. Mm. 
And I think that's a beautiful way of putting it that we are, and even just thinking, you know, I love the poetry of the fact that a human body is the same ratio of like water as the earth and that we exist within all kinds of like microcosms of big universal truths. And I mean, he's a very different communicator, but in some ways when we went to see Rob Bell, which funny story, Mitch, uh, John was there on away. and hey. um, has has his own hot takes on seeing <laughs> Rob Bell live. <laughs> but but like Rob is like you know, uh, and for people that have haven't listened, we did a similar kind of episode debriefing our experience of seeing Rob live. But but Rob is all about like connecting the big universal cosmological space quantum physics stuff with the everyday experience of being you as a mm. human. And I kind of feel like that's what we're talking about here as well, where it's like we are microcosms and little words that express the divine word that is everything and that we're on, you know, this path that that brings it all together. And I love just one more thing that is on my mind from the day I loved. I don't know if this was said from the stage or it was just in our conversations at lunch and stuff, but the idea that the Genesis story can be read as an unrealized story, mm. as a as a this is actually a picture of both the beginning and the ending, mm. and that creation and there's this idea that creation and fall kind of happen simultaneously, but that when things are, you know, restored, they'll also be at their true beginning, and in some ways we haven't yet arrived at the beginning. Now, some people will listen to that and it's like, that's philosophical wanky shit that has nothing to do with me going to my job tomorrow. <laughs> but that's like creation but I, hasn't I, happened As a yet. poetic, philosophical person, I'd like, it's, it's such a beautiful idea. Say the thing about creation not happening yet because that is, that is cool. Yeah, well, that's it. Like, they, that's what they, that creation hasn't quite happened yet and it's got all to do, um, yeah, I mean, I think you said it, like you, yeah. But it has all to do with the coming out of nothingness, right? So, like, mm. creation will finally be when, you know, when Adam and Eve, so the the representative humans or the whole of humanity. So Adam and Eve are not individuals, but the whole of humanity joined, you know, in a garden or together in in uh, in the great oneness. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, the, the, the fall, I think the fall stuff, like the fall happening in... Uh, like not it being a reality that hasn't that doesn't happen in history or doesn't happen in time, but kind of happens in mm. what 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 language did he use for it? Like he he used the word atemporal. Atemporal. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's an atemporal reality. The fall is an atemporal mm. reality, but it's not a progression. It's not like it's not like everything was perfect and then it went suddenly wrong. Um, it's just by nature of it coming into existence, it was already you know or at least already had the potential for wrong. Yeah. Well, I guess it makes sense that if if something finite is created, mm. then it must always have the potential to go astray, mm. right? It must always have the potential to 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 move towards non-existence, to re, you know, to riff on what we were discussing before. Um, so, in that sense, you know, the fall is always possible, um, I, and it's always happening, and we're mm. we're fighting it in some sense or another. That's good. A temporal fall makes like it solves so solves so many problems, <laughs> like all those billions <laughs> of years of you know animal suffering all of a sudden is not you know big you know not part baked into the plan. Mm. Like yeah, it was it was a, a 
potential or possibility always. Yeah. I mean, there's so much within this school of thought. Again, like we said, it's ancient and it's it's part of the tradition, but it, it's also like it it moves in the opposite direction of so much of what has been the version of the tradition mm. that we have been handed. And we mm. often have this picture of God who's like, you know, the architect at the desk, sitting down, making the drawings, figuring it all out, taking a long deliberation session and then creating everything and it's it's not like that like mm. in this in this paradigm it's not like god was again god was a being sitting there figuring things out mm. and then coordinating but it's almost like god as being in its very nature and god being love in very nature mm. this this is just the this is the expression of that and again this you know is that is that uh what does god's God's choice or freedom look like in that? Maybe that's another question for well, another day. He, I think Hart gets himself in a bit of trouble actually with Catholics because he kind of he basically says God could not not have created. You know, it was there's no there's no deliberation in God. Like God's not going, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Like God is pure actuality. Mm. Well, intention and actuality together is that. I think that's exactly kind of. I think that yeah, the way that he talks about it. Right. So. So there's no deliver like it's not got there's no there's no possible picture of God where he does not create, basically. And because like, you know, so much of Christian theology is built on, you know, God's completeness and, you know, creation not being necessary. Um, there's yeah. this there's this semantic discussion that goes on between him and a few other theologians about that word mm. necessary. Um so it's like it like is it necessary? Like it it's necessary in the sense that God has to be God. And to be God is mm. to bring into existence all that is possible to bring into existence. Uh, Jordan mm. Daniel Wood, another an, a, a Maximus scholar, has this same idea. Like God actually has to bring into existence everything that is possible to exist because if he doesn't, then there's something that lies beyond the possibility of God and therefore God is not God. Um, it, this is getting into some like random f- f- philosophy it's, at that point. But it makes sense when you actually well. think about it. You're like, yeah, no, that does make sense. Like it has to... How could it be otherwise? Sorry, John. I was just going to say, like, even from you know the the very basic premise of of there being no deliberation, like you said Mm. before, no pause. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because there's no such thing as like time in the same way as Mm. we understand it. Then every action is always an action that was always going to happen because we're talking about the infinite. Mm. Would John Daniel Daniel Wood go so far to say that um, every possibility will be actualized? So, like, it kind of has to be, and then all the evil will become, um, like, completely untrue or, um, yeah, in in the end, because every, like, again, every possibility has to has to come into existence. Otherwise, it lies without the scope of God. That's 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 some multiverse shit right there. It is. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's like yeah, a Christian yeah. multiverse. And I'm not like, I'm, 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 I'm beyond aware. my depth of like understanding that, but there's something intuitively about it that you go, yeah, if that is the picture of God, then that's kind of how it has to be. I don't know if that, yeah. I'm, I'm acutely aware as we come towards the end of this one that um, some people, like the three of us, obviously, we freaking love <laughs> talking about this weird stuff. <laughs> and some people... Like possibly all of our wives um, are like, what the f- 
fuck are you doing talking about this shit? It's just <laughs> it a waste matter. of time. <laughs> you know, actually, just on that note, just quickly, I am quite sad that we didn't get to touch upon how good, like, how good theology actually impacts your real life. Mm. Um, and, like, Ooh. linking, for mm. instance, I really was hoping that we touch upon, like, ACT and religious trauma, complex trauma, um, and, you know, the work of... Um, Oh, gosh, I forget his name. But there's a bunch of um, psychologists and psychoanalysts that have been coming out recently looking into religious trauma in depth and just the link mm. between, like, eternal torment and some of these ghastly ideas mm. that, that we find in Christianity mm. and what it does to the whole person, not just the psyche, but, you know, holistically what it does to mm. a person. Um, and then... Anyway, so I was like, I think you just invited you just invited yourself back for round two, John, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that does sound like a sorry, great, guys. Like, more more wanky yeah. intellectual shit. <laughs> well, no, I love that. Like, wh- why no, does I it do. actually matter? I mean, obviously, the three of us think it matters, and mm. and I know a lot of people do, but I think to make that connection would be cool to talk a bit oh, more about it's, how it's so that, important. you know the ideas have consequences and that's what bell yeah. did right you know for all the flack that bell does like he liberated so many people um mm. you know it's ironic like so many like fundies and and conservatives will say oh he's led so many people astray well then for those those others like probably three of us like he was a gateway into still mm. being a christian because mm. he wasn't in an ivory tower, like, you know, Hart and some of these other theologians we're talking about, but he linked, like, those ideas to real lived human experience. Mm. Um, um, Such really a good did. point. Well, and I think, like, mm. it would be interesting if I was a more disciplined, smarter person. I would sit down, get the transcri- transcript of Rob Bell's, um, you know, presentation and some DBH and actually see the the overlap and continuity between them because i think even in con- like you like rob bell's touching on consciousness and like you know uh mm. yeah like panentheism like all these kind of things you can see he's influenced by this kind of thinking but he just says it oh you've got to assume that rob has read yeah, dbh yeah. Mm. and he just says it in a way that is like far more accessible and you know like mm. most people can kind of you know grasp yeah well that's the thing i mean uh, we didn't really talk that much about the actual experience of mm. the day we talked more about the ideas that it was kind of a gateway into. But the experience of the day was, I kind of joked about it at the beginning, but like sitting in kind of a, you know, stuffy lecture theatre, sort of, you know, that kind of stereotype. But I think like John's saying, and, and I think it is worth a follow-up chat, mm-hmm. those ideas that exist within stuffy lecture theatres, whether they're hearts or, you know, pipers or whatever, those ideas do shape the consciousness mm. of communities and lived experience and, yeah, whether or not, again, we're, we're participating in the trajectory of healing and wholeness or of continued um, harm and, and religiously, you know, instigated and motivated harm. But I think we should leave that for another day. I will just say... Um, I know some people, they, they love to get together at the pub and discuss the footy. I think that would be heaps crap. <laughs> I don't care about it. Um, I mean, I would, I would gladly chat about the Matildas for, for 90 minutes. Um, but, but this is definitely my kind of pub, pub theology chat. And I hope, dear listener, that if you've been with us 
and you made it this far, that you got something out of that. I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to rank topics of conversation at the pub because I could talk about footy at the pub. That would be okay. But look, yes, yeah, I um. <laughs> But I will say, <laughs> well, this is not this is not inferior. <laughs> this is not an inferior chat to talking footy at the pub. And like, yeah, if I if I was being really honest, this is the stuff I like to talk about the most. So, mm. well, this is the beauty of the pub, as is also the beauty of God, is that everything belongs. True, yeah. true that. Awesome. Well, thank you, fellas. Thank you, Will. Thank you, John. Thank you. Spiritual Misfits podcast is brought to you by Meeting Ground, a church for the misfits. We know we are only one small and humble faith community, but we're making this work in the hope that we can encourage and empower other people in similar spaces. If you haven't already done so, jump on our website, spiritualmisfits.com.au and join our mailing list to receive the Sunday message. No spam, no sales, just weekly encouragement around faith from the fringes. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing this episode, please share it and consider giving us a rating and review on your podcast platform or social media of choice. We'll catch you next time. Until then, take care and be kind.